Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 93. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, I don't know what the weather's been like in your part of the world, but here in Baltimore, Maryland, it's been pretty glum. So in the spirit of down and out, we've got a good melancholy show for you folks this week, and we're going to start it off with a hundred-word Drabble story called Ancient Apple Tree by Shane Shannon. Shane is a 20-something-year-old creative writer and podcaster living in St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada. His website is www.yonderman.com. When the old robot died, the people did not notice. It died suddenly, the middle of the orchard, its power cells shrieking for a few seconds before its spider-like legs collapsed. The people did not notice when the old robot died, but the robots did. They converged on the spot at dusk, all 47 of them, scurrying around on their eight legs, examining the body, asking questions, remembering... The old robot, they knew, had been the last of the original robots from the colony ship. The old robot had planted the ancient apple tree, now dripping blossoms over its body. This week is a feature story we bring you Blue by Hugo and Nebula award-winning author Mike Resnick. Mike wrote Blue and another story called The Last Dog in the late 1970s before he'd sold any short science fiction except to some men's magazines, which paid better. One's a science fiction story and one's kind of a fantasy, and both feature stories about dogs. All the major science fiction magazines, which were paying three cents a word back then, gave them form rejections so fast he knew the editors hadn't even read them. So he sent The Last Dog off to Hunting Dogs magazine, which bought it for 25 cents a word. It promptly won the American Dog Writers Award for Best Short Fiction of 1977. And then he sent Blue off to the same market. It sold for the same price and won the same award in 1978. The secretary of the American Dog Writers Association asked him if he was going to keep writing dog stories. He replied that as long as they gave out the award, he'd probably write at least one a year. They canceled the award the next week, and he hasn't written a dog story since although he since sold The Last Dog 12 more times, and Blue six more times, including to the same science fiction markets that wouldn't look at it back when he was unknown. And here it is now, 30 years later, on a flash fiction audio podcast on the World Wide Web. You never know what kind of voyage your work will take when you set it off. 
So without further ado, Blue by Mike Resnick. Well, I had a dog and his name was Blue. Bet you five dollars he's a good one too. Bet you five dollars he's a good one too. I had a dog and his name was Blue. Come on, Blue. I'm a coming too. Yeah, they sing that song about him. Burl Ives and Wynn Strachey and the rest. But they wouldn't have been too happy to be locked in the same room with old Blue. He'd as soon take your hand off as take a look at you. He wandered out to my shack one day when he was a pup and just plumped himself down and stayed. I always figured he stuck around because I was the only thing he'd ever seen that was even meaner and uglier than he was. Oh, and uh, as for betting five dollars on Blue or anything else, you can forget it been so long since I've seen five dollars that I don't even remember whose picture's on the bill. Jefferson, I think. Or maybe Roosevelt. Money just never mattered much to me. And as long as Blue was warm and dry and had a full belly, nothing much mattered to him either. Each winter we'd shaggy up. Me on my face and him just about everywhere, and each summer we'd naked down. Didn't see a lot of people any time of the year, and when we did, it'd be a contest to see who could run them off the territory first, me or Blue. He'd win more often than not. He never came back looking for praise, or like he'd done a bright thing. It was more like he'd done a necessary thing. Those woods and that river was ours, his and mine, now we didn't see any reason to put up with a batch of intruders, neither city slickers nor down-home boys either. It was a pretty good life. Neither of us got fat, but we didn't go hungry very often either. And it was kind of good to sit by a fire together, me smoking and him snorting. I don't think he liked my pipe tobacco much, but we had this kind of pack not to bother each other, and he stuck by it a lot better than a couple women I outlived. <laughs> And mister, that dog was hell on a cold scent. Blue chased a possum up a cinnamon tree. Blue looked at the possum and the possum looked at me. He looked at the possum and the possum looked at me. Blue chased a possum up a cinnamon tree. Come on, Blue, I'm a coming too. Except it wasn't a cinnamon tree at all. I don't recollect seeing one of those. It was just a plain old tree, and I still can't figure out how the possum got up there all in one piece. It must have been twenty below zero. Neither of us had eaten in a couple days. Suddenly, Blue put his nose to the ground and started baying just like a bloodhound. Thought he was on the trail of an escaped killer the way he carried on, but it was just an old possum, looking every bit as cold and hungry as we did. The way Blue ran him, I thought his heart would burst. But somehow he made it a few feet up that tree trunk. Slashed Blue on the nose a couple times just for good measure, but if he thought he'd make old Blue run off with his tail between his legs, he had another thing coming. Blue just stood there, kind of smiling up at him, saying, Possum, let's see you come on down and try that again. He had a mighty toothy smile. 
Won't you bake that possum, bake it good and brown Lay the sweet potatoes, lay them all around Lay sweet potatoes, lay them all around Bake that possum, bake it good and brown Come on, Blue, you can have some too Never did like possum meat Even when you bake a possum, it tastes just awful Sweet potatoes are just to kill the flavor Folk singers and poets live on steak and praise let him try living on possum for a few days, and I bet that verse would come out different. Anyway, I did offer some to Blue, just like the song says. He looked at it, picked it up, kind of played with it like a pup dog does when you give him a piece of fruit. At first, I thought it was just good taste on Blue's part, and then his nose it started to swell where the possum had nailed him. Usually I'd slap a little mud on a wound like that, but mud's not the easiest thing to come by when it's below zero, so I rubbed some snow on instead. First time in his life, Blue ever snarled at me. When old Blue died, he died so hard, it shook the ground in my backyard. It shook the ground in my backyard. When old Blue died, he died real hard. Go on, Blue. I guess that possum had rabies or something, because Blue just got worse and worse. His face swelled up like a balloon. Some of the fire went out of his eyes. We stayed in the shack, me tending to him, except when I had to go out and shoot us something to eat, and him just getting thinner and thinner. I kept trying to make him rest easier, and I could see him fighting with himself, trying not to bite me when I touched him where it hurt. Then... One day, he started foaming at the mouth and howling something awful. And suddenly he turned toward me and got up on his feet, kind of shaky-like, and I could tell he didn't know who I was anymore. He went for me, but fell over on his side before he got halfway across the floor. I only had a handful of bullets left for the winter, but I figured I'd rather eat fish for a month than let him lie there like that. I walked over to him and put my finger on the trigger, and suddenly he stopped tossing around and held stock still. <laughs> Maybe he knew what I was going to do, or more likely it was just that he always held still when I raised my rifle. I don't know the reason, but I know we each made things a little easier for the other in that last couple of seconds before I squeeze the trigger. When I get to heaven, the first thing I'll do is grab my horn and I'll call for blue. Grab my horn and I'll call for blue. When I get to heaven, that's the first thing I'll do. Hello, blue. Finally got here, too. That's the way the song ends. It's a right pretty sentiment, so I suppose they had to sing it that way. But heaven ain't where I'm bound. Wouldn't like it anyhow. White robes and harp strumming and minded my manners every second. Besides, winter has always chilled me to the bone. I like heat. And when I get where I'm going, I'll look up and call for him. And Blue will come running, just like he always did. 
He'll have a long way to go before he finds me. But that never stopped old Blue. He'll just put his nose to the ground. Pretty soon we'll be together again. And he'll know why I did what I did to him. And we'll sit down before the biggest fire of all. Me smoking my pipe and him twitching and snorting like always. And maybe I'll pet him. But probably I won't. Maybe he'll lick me. But probably he won't. We'll just sit there together and we'll know everything's okay again. Hello, Blue. Finally got here too. Well, I had a dog and his name was Blue. Bet you five dollars he's a good one too. Bet you five dollars he's a good one too. I had a dog and his name was Blue. Come on, Blue. I'm a coming too. Come on, Blue. I'm a coming too. Oh, dog stories. Get me every time. Dogs are awesome. In my experience, even the little yippy annoying ones have small traces of complete and utter loyalty buried deep down under all that poofy frippery. Dogs are animals that we totally don't deserve, and I hope you don't take yours for granted. Let's catch up on some story feedback from a couple weeks ago when we ran episode 88, The Toys of Peace by Saki. Overall, people enjoyed this story, although a few thought it was a bit boring and others took issue with the theme of the story. By far the biggest fan of the story was Mr. Tweedy, who said, Geez, I've listened to this episode three times in the last 24 hours and laugh out loud at each time. I love the absolute patheticness of the uncle's attempts to explain why a John Stuart Mill's action figure is much more fun than Calvary. I could just imagine the children's blank stares as he tries to explain the municipal dustbin toy and his own increasing embarrassment as he tries to conjure up reasons he doesn't really have or believe himself. Berendor disagreed, saying, This so-called satire rests on the observation that war games are much more fun than civilian play, and in order to make that observation, the civil side of it all is described in the most boorish way possible. Everyday life sees multiple conflicts that need to be solved peacefully, and if you wanted, I'm sure you could make great stories about putting together an art show before the evil contractor forecloses your building, or, heck, take pretty much any romantic comedy plot. McToad said, The topic hit me at home because we're going through that with my boys. Me, the avid gun nut, my wife banning war toys from the house, and the toddler starting to use sticks, pencils, and flashlights as toy guns. Ah, nature versus nurture. How sweet it is. The next week, we ran Samantha Henderson's story, Starry Night. This was the fantasy tale with the angels burning people, turning them into gems, and making their kids have yellow eyes. Yeah, that one. The majority of people on our discussion forum seemed to love this story, although others thought it left too much unexplained, and others just posted pictures of David Bowie dying for our sins on Calvary. DKT said, That was fantastic. Chilling in a subtle way and introspective. I loved how it tied in so well with the Van Gogh picture. The images at the end were great. I'm a big fan of Samantha Henderson's. I've read her novel Heaven Bones, which has a different type of angel in it. Angels made from the bodies of murdered women. It's pretty gory and disturbing, but it's also elegantly written. Plus, there's a psychic cop, an insane doctor, and sentient fog. Ooh, nice plug, DKT. You sure know how to sell a story. I've got a copy coming in the mail any day now. Logistic Vantra Shell of Lob said, I would give my left hand to see more stories like this on Drabblecast. This is one of my favorite episodes, despite numerous flaws. I listened to this while walking my dog, and I actually stopped dead in my tracks at some of the exceptionally strange parts. On the other hand, and that would be my right in this case, there were a few too many unanswered questions at the end. 
the colors of sin bit felt a little too much like it was tacked onto the end to add meaning to an otherwise brilliant piece. The angels appearing at the end was very predictable, and I disagree with the main character's decision to simply suffer the fate the angels had in store for him. Strawman said, It's an unfortunate coincidence for the point of the story that the headline news today is about an eight-year-old boy who murdered his father and another man. Or maybe he was just hoping to turn them into precious stones. The idea that youth equals innocence is a flat-out, bald-faced piece of fiction. But after all, flat-out, bald-faced fiction is just another name for Drabblecast. And yeah, the Magisteri I know would have ran like hell. Well, that's all for this week. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you can't change it, you can't sell it, but you can share it all you like. If you enjoyed today's show, consider donating to us via the buttons on our website, either for a one-time donation or for a $5 a month subscription. We also have Drabblecast t-shirts for sale. Go to the t-shirt section in our discussion forums at drabblecast.org for more info or to check them out. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that all dogs go to heaven. Unless they have three heads, in which case they end up guarding hell for all of eternity. The evening saunters to closing. The waitress turns chairs upside down. Piano player picks up his tip jar and drink, and the bartender shouts last round. An hour ago, this place was loaded. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.